Good morning, everyone. Our reading this morning begins in the book of Psalms, Psalm 117, and that is found on page 511 in the Bibles that we provide. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord, the word of the Lord. If you could turn with me now to 1 Corinthians 9, chapter 9, and verses 19 through 23, and that's found on page 957 in the Bibles that we provide. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, but not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Alan. This morning we're going to be looking at the gospel according to John chapter 4, one of the most beloved stories that John gives us from the life of Jesus. And uh, I would encourage you to turn, if you want to take one of our Bibles, you'll find this on page 888, or you may just want to sit as I read it and absorb it. Don't daydream. This story is so richly textured and has enough here for uh, months of uh, teaching and preaching, but uh, I want to read this whole thing to you. I really hesitated, looked at ways to abridge it, and then I thought, well, this is better than anything I'm going to say about it, so let's just read this together. John chapter 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands and the one you are now with is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where the people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, his disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world, the gospel of Christ. Who am I? And who is God? Those two most basic questions of identity have haunted humanity and lie really at the base of what Viktor Frankl in his well-known book called Man's Search for Meaning. The scriptures are filled with this question and indeed church history addresses it over and over again in its theological reflections. 
For example, in Exodus chapter three, as Moses stands before the bush that burns and is not consumed, he asks two questions. Who am I and who are you? Who am I that you should call me and send me back to redeem your people? And if they should say, who has sent you, what is your name? Who am I and who are you? John Calvin, in what is arguably the greatest, certainly the most magisterial theological work of the Protestant Reformation, his Institutes of the Christian Religion, opens that massive multi-volume work with this statement. Almost or nearly all true wisdom consists of these two things, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. And yet those of us who are old realize that it takes a lifetime of conscious reflection and wise counsel, much prayer, much thought, to even begin to get to know ourselves. Many never actually take on that most central task and manage to fill their lives with so much busyness that they never ask the basic question, who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? But it's essential. Even the pagan philosopher Socrates said, most basically, know thyself. Know yourself. And if it takes a lifetime to know yourself, how in the world are we to know God or even to know if there is a God to know? Those basic identity questions asked by prophets and by Sages and philosophers and mystics and ordinary workaday folk all through history. The answers to those questions are not so much discovered as revealed and recognized when one truly encounters Jesus. Why do I say that? Because he alone is truly God and truly human. And so in him, If we see him truly and clearly, we see who God is. He said, that's why I've come, to make him known. And in seeing him clearly, we see what we were meant to be and what he alone is able to make us become by what he has done on our behalf. So what I'd like to invite you to do this morning is to go quickly through this tremendous story that, again, has so much more than we could begin at one sitting to to even recognize and point out. But I want to highlight five ways that Jesus, in this text, shows us what God is like, who God is, and shows us who we are meant to be. So it represents both the revelation of truth, but it also represents a call to those of us who would dare to name him. And it comes because of the person that he's talking with. 
as an incredibly encouraging call to anyone who thinks that he or she is outside the pale of God's grace. Now, I haven't done a count and I haven't read this, but even as I read it this morning to you, I thought, I'll bet we have more recorded conversation from this woman than we have from any other woman in Scripture, possibly because of Mary's long hymn, we have more from Mary. But aside from that, maybe you can correct me or check it out, but I'll Google it later. I should have before. But I was just thinking, this Samaritan woman may have given us more conversation, more sheer space in Scripture than any other woman. And this will be important. Why? Because the first thing that I'd have you note is that Jesus was willing to go anywhere to find lost and broken people. Now, why do I say that? Well, to us, living here, we just read these texts and take them at face value. But John opens by, and remember, John's writing to people that were alive when he was alive and knew the way things were. He says, Jesus was going to go from Judea back up to the Galilee in the north. Judea's in the south, the Galilee's in the north, and between the two lies Samaria, what we today call the West Bank. And he says in order to go from there up, he had to go through Samaria. Now to us, we say, yeah, it makes sense. Geographically, it's between the two. But to a religious Jewish person in the first century, they'd have gone, what? What are you talking about? He doesn't have to go through there. He should not go through there. No religious Jewish person would go through Samaria. What the Jews did to get up to the north was to go first all the way over to the east, down into the Jordan River Valley, and then at Jericho, they would head up north and go up, skirting Samaria, so as not to pollute themselves, not to become unclean by passing through the land of Samaria, and certainly not to be found in conversation or touching anything that a Samaritan had touched. So Jesus didn't have to go up there in order to make the journey. He had to go up there for another reason. He had to go through Samaria because there was a woman that he was going to meet in Samaria. Jesus is willing to go to the places where good people aren't inclined to go. They're simply too polluted, too evil, too wicked, too broken, too godless. And that's where Jesus went. And it was in small a picture of the whole incarnation where unlike religion that tells us either about the distant gods or about these gods that are all too human because broken and fighting and warring and uh, procreating and all of the rest, religion produces that kind of thing and then humanity has to deal with the gods. Religion, ancient religions, were the the theological equivalent of those books, the care and feeding of your uh, golden retriever. It was the care and feeding of this particular local God. This is how you deal with him and try to manage him and keep him off your back. Only the God of the Bible was the God who was both holy and transcendent and yet who was willing to come and involve himself in our brokenness. Grace comes from God. It does not 
move through our religious effort toward him. And so Jesus is acting that out. He's going into Samaria with simply a picture of his coming into this world. And I would simply ask you, if you bear the name of Jesus, is there anywhere, even in this little town, that you would never be willing to go in order that people might have life? Is there any place simply too broken, too dangerous, too dirty, too depraved, too much not your kind of place that you would not go for the sake of seeking and saving the lost? Jesus was willing to go anywhere to find broken people. Secondly, amplification of that, the reason that he was willing to go, Jesus was willing to sit and pour out his life to anyone who needed living water, anyone who needed the gospel. Again, this is the incarnation. This is what it looks like when the religious people looked at Jesus and said to his disciples, why does he eat with sinners? Why does he associate with those? Doesn't he know he's supposed to be with us? We're having a, a, a dinner at Cedar Springs, and the pastors will be there. That's where he should be. Why is he, why is he across the street? Not at Bojangles, at the ale house. <laughs> And Jesus said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I want to tell you, as much as we hear it, we have this default mode as humans to think, until I get my act together, until I sort of meet the standards of the religious people that I know, uh, God's not going to care about me. God's not going to hear my prayer. God's not going to... Jesus went to the most broken people. And as we'll see, this woman was a doozy. He had two reasons not to talk to her. She was a Samaritan and she was a woman. And she spoke of both of them. She said to him, how is it that you're asking something of me, a Samaritan woman? And then John says, for the Jews have nothing to do with the Samaritans. And then later, when the disciples come back, it doesn't say that they were astonished to find him talking to a Samaritan. They were astonished to find him talking to a woman. Why? Because in that culture, you did not talk in public with a woman who was not a relative. It was considered wrong, improper. And yet there sits Jesus at high noon talking to a woman from Samaria. It's the foolishness of God that's wiser than men. It's the weakness of God that is stronger than human strength. It's the gospel. If you feel that you're outside the pale, this woman is exhibit A of everything outside the pale. She was culturally broken. She was a Samaritan. Who were they? If you know your Old Testament history, when the Assyrians came in and carried the northern kingdom away, they resettled that whole area in what became Samaria. 
with people from all other conquered nations who were all idolaters. So it was a mixed multitude of all these different cultures that had been conquered by the Assyrians. Then when they got into trouble there, they said, we need to know about the local God. So they sent them some Jewish priests and said, teach them also about the God of this country. So they put together this syncretistic religion filled with idolatry, but also with the hope of the Messiah, because she says, we know when the Messiah comes, that he'll teach all. So, and that's why Jesus will say to her, you, you don't know what you're worshiping. <laughs> you're in this mixed thing. She was sexually broken, as we'll say. And I just ask you again, is there anyone whom you have defined outside the realm of God's grace? I suspect not. Let me put it this way. Is there any one or any kind of person or any group of people whom you have defined outside the realm that you are willing to engage for the sake of the gospel? Is there anyone whose particular identity or area of brokenness is such that you would rather not deal with them? Is there anyone whom you will not sit and engage gladly for the sake of Christ. Jesus didn't have any such boundaries, barriers. He was willing to engage the most broken and to do it gladly for the sake of the gospel. Thirdly, when he engaged, he did not engage from a position of power and authority. Sit down, little woman, keep your distance, and I will speak truth to you. It's not what he did. Jesus, thirdly, was willing to be vulnerable in order to establish common ground with her and have a conversation. Everything that flows, the salvation that ends up flowing to her city, starts with Jesus' own admission of his thirst, his physical thirst, and his inability to satisfy it. He is saying, in effect, to this woman, it's hot out here, high noon. That's what the sixth hour was. That's how they measured from six in the morning. It was noon. It was the Middle East. It was in that stretch of Samaria. Would have been so hot. And he says, I am so thirsty. Help me. Please help me. And that's when she says, and I, I've just got to interject. You can tell this woman was easy with men because most women in that culture would, would have either run or dipped the thing, given him the water, gotten out. She's ready to talk. You know, she says, you're asking me, you're Jewish, you're asking me, a Samaritan woman, to get you water? What's, what gives here? This is interesting. Tell me your story. And so, of course, that leads to him saying, if you knew the one who asked, you would have asked him for water, and he would have given you living water, water that once you drink it, you're never thirsty again. She's like, you know, I wasn't born yesterday. You don't have a bucket. You don't have a rope. You don't have any way to get, the, you know, you just asked me for water, and now you're talking about giving me water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who dug this well and gave it to his son Joe? And Jesus said, the water that I give wells up spring of living water inside you 
to eternal life. And now this woman realizes her thirst. It's not up here. It's deep in her gut. It's what's caused her to go from man to man to man. It's something she cannot satisfy. She is so hungry and she is so thirsty and she's tried it all. And she says, sir, give me this water. Give me this water so that I won't ever thirst again and won't have to come out here. Why did she say that? What is she doing there at high noon? People in the ancient world never drew water at high noon. They went out in the cool of the morning and in the cool of the evening. And that was also the place where they gossiped and talked and gathered. She didn't want to have to sit there with the stares of the townspeople and the gossip about her going on. So she comes at high noon when there'll be nobody else there. And she says, sir, give me this water so that I won't ever have to come out here again. Jesus was willing to make himself vulnerable. How often, if we're willing to share our faith, we think we have to come across as omnicompetent, almost omniscient and godlike and having it all together. And that, that's anti-incarnational. You start, it, oh, Jesus, Paul writes it so beautifully in Philippians 2, he who was in the form of God did not count equality something to grasp, but emptied himself and took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of human flesh, he became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, given him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess him, Lord. That theme runs through the entire scripture. Jeremiah says, you exalt yourself, you're going to crash. But if you humble yourself, God will lift you up. Jesus came and lived that out but he didn't stay there. At the moment when the woman is comfortable with him, has heard his own willingness to be human and say, I'd love a drink, but has awakened within her a thirst, and she said, give it to me. She, he doesn't just go, just pray this prayer and everything's okay. Because fourthly, Jesus loved people enough to hurt them in order to heal them. He was willing to bring pain to this woman, to expose her brokenness and sin so that she could taste the water of life. That's why he said, go get your husband and come back. <laughs> of course, it was a perfectly appropriate question. I mean, it's inappropriate for them. So someone listening could have thought, of course, yeah, he's saying, come on, let's get your husband and then we can keep talking. But of course, Jesus had a different reason for asking. She said, I don't have a husband. She wants to keep talking. He said, you're an honest woman. You're right. You've had five husbands, but the guy you're living with right now is not your husband. You're very honest. Twice he commends her honesty while pointing out her brokenness. <laughs> and this woman, I, I just I find her so delightful. She knows how to deal with men. He says, puts his finger right on her sin, and she doesn't miss a beat. She says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. I have a theological question for you. She just wants to take the discussion right away. You know, our people say we're to worship here. Your people say you're to worship in Jerusalem, which is right. And in what follows, and we don't have time to look at it, 
But the heart of the whole text is in the verses that we're just going to skim by. Go back and look. Here's the key. Don't miss this. Jesus tells this woman things that he did not tell his own disciples until the end. The disciples pressed him, teach us this, show us that. But Jesus gives the most exquisitely beautiful and concise teaching on worship to this woman that he gives anywhere in the Gospels. He says the time is coming and he's even here now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such the Father is seeking. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? In spirit means not merely outward forms, not just saying amen when we're supposed to or crossing ourselves or genuflecting, all of which are fine if they're expressions of the heart, but he's saying it's to be from the heart, it's to be from the inside out, in spirit and in truth. God has shown us in his word how he would be worshipped. Worship him that way. Worship him as he would be worshipped, but from the heart, not just outwardly going through the motions to get it over with. Back in the 80s and 90s, there was a big movement called seeker worship. Actually, it went back further to Willow Creek. And the whole thing was find uh, people that don't want to go to church, find out what, what they would like, what seekers would like, and give them that. Which, of course, it's fine to try to bring people in, but... The downside of all that is that it makes people think that worship is about them. That worship is really good if we sang songs I liked and the preacher was funny and it was short. Only the first of which you'll ever get here. (laughs) Worship is about God. And the question is not what we're seeking, but what he is seeking from those whom he has made. Jesus said, the Father seeking this. Worshippers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. The other thing that he reveals to her, until he turns his face to go to Jerusalem and face the cross, he never will say clearly to his disciples that he is the Messiah. Only then at Caesarea Philippi does he say, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answers and he says, yes. Only in his trial, will he ever answer the question that was asked of him over and over again to the surrounding world, only when the high priest finally says at his trial, tell us clearly, are you the Christ? And he says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, power and glory. He's course quoting from the book of Daniel. The high priest tears his robes and says, what more proof do we need? This is blasphemy. Take him out. But here, at the beginning of his ministry, with this Samaritan woman who was immoral. He says, she says to him, we know that when Messiah comes, he'll answer these questions for us. And Jesus looks at her and says, I who speak to you am he. That's how much he loved her. That's how much he wanted her to know that she was in the presence of the only one who could give her life. The question is why? Why her? 
And this is the final point. Jesus was willing to make this woman's salvation his food and his drink. The disciples return. They say, we've got food for you. They, they wonder, gosh, he's talking to a woman. What's going on? It's bad enough we're here in Samaria and had to go into that town and get polluted by buying food, but ah, now he's out here talking to a woman. What's next? But they don't ask. She leaves, goes back to town. This woman who's gone out at noon to keep from having to encounter people now goes back and says, I can't keep this to myself. I think I've just met the Messiah. Could he be? He told me everything I'd ever done. He knew everything about me. He wakened within me the longing for what is good and right and true, the need for repentance, my need for God. And the town goes out and meets him, and many come to know the Lord. But his disciples, meanwhile, say, Rabbi, eat. And Jesus says, I have food to eat you know nothing about. And they say, did somebody bring him food? Maybe this one. I mean, what's going on? And he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, to accomplish his purposes. And perhaps in that sentence, I see most clearly the spiritual immaturity and rebellion in my own heart. Here I am, close to retirement, coming to the end, almost 40 years of ministry. 40 if you count seminary. And I love the gospel, and I love telling you of the gospel, and when I'm energized, I do love sitting with you and hearing your stories and telling you, but I, I can't tell you how often and increasingly as I get old, if it's in the afternoon, I'm sitting there thinking, I hope they make it short. I got problems of my own. I mean, I got family problems. Why do I have to listen to theirs? But I'll do it because Christ has shown me such compassion. I need to do this. This is right. And this is what I'm to do. This is being a pastor. Lord, forgive me. I'm... But too often it isn't my food and drink. I want to finish up with you so I can go and do what I really want to do with the rest of my day if there's any left. Isn't that terrible? I'm getting you ready just to, you've loved me so well, but I'm telling you the truth now, so you just let me go. Say, bye, John. Don't let the door hit you in the rear end as you're going out. Jesus wasn't dealing with this woman out of a sense of obligation. This was his food and drink, doing his Father's will. It was his whole life. It was his joy. He was now energized. He'd sat down at midday weary. I don't know whether the woman ever actually dropped the thing down in and gave him some water or not, but by the time his disciples come back, he's energized. He's happy. He's full. He's been doing the Father's will. He's, been, he's found a broken person and brought her home to the Father's heart. He's confronted her in her sin and brokenness, and she's responded with a thirst and a desire for living water. So why is this so important? For this reason, to close the loop and go back to the beginning. Because Jesus said, I've come to show you who God is. He who has seen me has seen the Father. We don't serve an angry God with Jesus kind of between us, shielding us from his anger. 
when we see Jesus sitting with this broken, immoral woman. We see the heart of our Heavenly Father. That's who he is. That's who our God is. And we see who we're supposed to be. Time for confession. Because he wants us to be able always to say, my food, my drink, my joy is doing my Father's will. It's sitting with broken people and seeing them come home. And in times when it seems too much, we still have Jesus for a model. In the garden, he said, this is too much. Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. There's a picture of who God is and who he wants to make us. We're on that journey if we're following Jesus. No place where we're not willing to go as long as Jesus goes with us. Nobody who's too broken, too wrong, too different for us not to be willing to sit and realize this is what it's about. Not for my strength, but for my own brokenness and vulnerability and need of Christ and the living water. Only from that can I speak. And yet, a willingness to love enough when it's appropriate to say, this is not right. Look at your life. You've got to face this. You can't know the living water until you turn and begin to follow Jesus. What's your food and drink? I've preached twice this morning. I'm hungry. I'm hoping there's something good to eat at home. But I want this gospel. And the opportunity to tell it to be my greatest joy until I die. And I pray that for you, wherever Christ has put you, that this will increasingly be your food and drink to do your Father's will. Would you stand?